Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. On this episode, we have a special guest, Dr. Lynn Nichols, who just happened to be drifting through town and we were lucky enough to get a spot on his schedule. Now, I won't do justice in describing his career, but let me just highlight a few of his roles, some current, some previous. Non-resident fellow of the Health Policy Center of the Urban Institute, where he's the principal investigator for the collaborative approach to public good investments. Professor Emeritus of Health Policy at George Mason University, Innovation Advisor to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, Vice President of the Center for Studying Health System Change, Director of the Health Policy Program at the New America Foundation, Senior Advisor for Health Policy at the Office of Management and Budget in the Clinton administration. Now, clearly, that's not a current role, uh, so we can assume that that's previous, but I'll let you guess as to which of those he's still doing. Importantly, though, his roots are here in Arkansas. Although he got his doctorate in economics from the University of Illinois, he earned his bachelor's degree from Hendricks College in Conway and his master's in economics from the University of Arkansas. And I would bet every penny I own that this is the only podcast that has both a host and a guest with ties to Star City, Arkansas, and will thus be entitled The Twinkle Town Talk. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nichols, and thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks. All right. So before we get to the more serious stuff, I want to know what keeps you busy when you're not working with all those roles. Well, (laughs) well, I would say uh, sleep, uh, uh, reading history. That's my avocation. I've always loved history. You know, Joe Thompson's father taught me history at Hendricks. I'll never forget that. Well, it's great. We're doing the the podcast here in the Butler Center, which is dedicated to history studies. Well, there you go. That's proof it's a good idea. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, we just moved to New Orleans in June. Oh, yeah. And so I'm learning to experience what I call porch culture. Yeah. People there, one family, two family, three family, four family, doesn't matter. They all have porches. They sit on the porches. And when you walk down the street, they ask you how you're doing, and they actually want to know. Yeah. We've been there four months. Not a human being has asked us what we do for a living. It's unbelievably refreshing. (laughs) That's great. That's great. All right. So I asked this of all of our wonky guests, and I'm going to ask it to you, too, even though you're just drifting through town. What would you say is your theme song? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) But I would say right now it's I Shall Believe by Sheryl Crow. Okay. Even if it's a lie, say it will be all right. I shall believe. Because it's sung in a gospel way. Yeah. And it's double entendre. It's, it's of course, about a love situation. Uh But it's also can be interpreted as a conversation with Jesus. Hmm. And I would say anybody who is a health economist (laughs) trying to bring about change in the way we address upstream problems, social Mm -hmm. determinants of health, has to be a believer or it's not going to work. you got to have some faith in it. It's a great great song. By the way, it'll be the opening in my funeral. Anyway, we keep going. All right. Um, so I, I want to get to your public good investment model, and we're, we're going to get there. But first I want to ask, 
why the folks in the healthcare space are much more focused recently on social needs? You know, that's a good question. And I would say uh, the f- simple answer, economists and actuaries have begun to learn what social workers have known for about 100 years. <laughs> you know, we think we invented this stuff, but they've been doing it forever. Right, right. But seriously, it, it really comes down to, I think it's fair to say, the pandemic has exposed the degree of inequality in our country. I mean, it was becoming obvious to more and more people, but the pandemic just drove it starkly home. Think about this notion of being an essential worker, okay? I'm not an essential worker. I got to work at home and got paid full speed, right? The people who bring me food are essential workers, and they're barely making a living. There's something wrong with that. And so that exposed all this stuff. And then I would say the George Floyd business and all the racial inequities that we've tolerated for far too long, all of that made it clear, hey, you know, if you really want to get serious about addressing health care costs, addressing yeah. people's lack of access to a fruitful life, you've got to think about stuff upstream of the healthcare system. Yeah. So I think healthcare figured out we can do some things. We can't do everything, right. but the, we're now focused because we know we should. So that, that, that leads me to my next question, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more context than I've put in the questions for you. Um, so when I graduated college, I started out as a newspaper reporter, and I worked for the Batesville Daily Guard. Um, and I don't even think you can go back and into – I mean, you probably can go back into the paper copies and, and find it. But, but they were unfortunate enough to give me a, a, a column um, so I could write about whatever I wanted to. And so one time I wrote about, um, an, I will say, an unnamed um, business there in town, which was a, it was a, uh, you know, a corporation that had businesses in multiple different towns. It was an entertainment business, and it was blockbuster-esque, shall we say. Uh, but they offered, uh, you know, magazines and books, uh, videos, VHS at the time, um, and, um, and music. Um, so c- CDs, I guess, at the time. Um, and, and I had a complaint that um, they don't do any of those things very well. So why do them at all? Mm. <laughs> that got me in a lot of trouble. So with that context, I'll say I'll ask you the question. The healthcare system is a difficult enough time producing good health outcomes, right? And I think you'd probably agree that to address social needs, we should just tackle it head on. Uh, and adequately and directly fund programs to do exactly that. But since we're unlikely to see that, is funding that through the healthcare system the best mechanism to have an impact? Well, that's a great question, and the answer is no, but compared to what? Yeah. All right? I mean, look, right. it's, it's unambiguously true. What's becoming evident is healthcare can't solve its problems unless we start to reach outside, quote, healthcare per se. Yeah. You've got to think about the fact that a homeless person who comes in an emergency room and may be treatable for whatever immediate issue is at present. Maybe they cut their leg, maybe they had a fight and got beat up, whatever. Maybe they had a bad episode on a bad dose of some drug they're addicted to. You can stabilize them. You can clean them up. You can sew them up. You can send them back out. But if they go back out into a world in which they don't have social supports, they don't have a safe place to sleep, they don't have access to food, yada, 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 
this is not going to end well. So fundamentally, I think it's fair to say healthcare has to take it on to do healthcare's job. Now, let me be clear: there's not enough healthcare savings to pay for utopia. Okay, right. this this <laughs> healthcare can't pay for all of it, but healthcare could get involved and and take a serious bite out of the inequities that are plaguing both the healthcare system and the social system. So it's due out of absolute necessity. It's it's there. I think it's like Churchill said, you know, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> we pretty much tried everything else yeah. and maybe social determinants will get us somewhere. Okay. <laughs> so um, so tell me about the collaborative approach to public good investment model. What is driving the need for it and, and how does the thing work? So let's go back to that situation where you've got this homeless person. And maybe the homeless person is addicted. A fair number of them do have mental health issues or mm-hmm. even addiction or both. And maybe they have a chronic health condition as well because they've been living out there for quite some time. Well, so they end up on a normal monthly basis getting arrested a couple of times, ending up in the ED a couple of times, ending up in some situation that gets everybody nervous in a couple of times. And so fundamentally, if you were able to wrap that person into a cocoon and say, we're going to give you an apartment and we're going to give you the social work wraparound services to help you deal with your addictions and your situations, oftentimes you can save not only law enforcement money, Mm -hmm. you can save health care money, you can save hospital money, insurance money, you can make city government whole. You may be able to restore a person to functionality and get back with their children and save child services money. So the point is, intervening in a social determinant context often produces multiple beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. The good news is multiple people benefit from that timely intervention. The bad news is when multiple people benefit, no single one wants to invest. Why? Because I can get the benefit if you invest so we all sit back on our hands and do damn near nothing, which is why we underinvest in social services compared to healthcare services. So our model is all about recognizing that mutual self-interest mm-hmm. in doing something together, recognizing that actually if we pool our resources, we can do more mm-hmm. for the homeless population than if we try to do it alone. And so it's a way to channel self-interest into the social interest and make the financing of the intervention sustainable. That's what's a beautiful thing. And so I'm going to have a follow-up question on that one. So so in theory, right, That's that works very well. It's elegant. How, how in the world do you track the dollars to make sure that people see the the financial benefit. That's a, that. that, that's the that's the core of what we do in the practical world, yeah, right? But yeah. what we have in Cleveland and Albany, New York, and Waco, Texas, right now, three very different places, by the way, yeah. and we have five health plans in Cleveland and three hospitals and a couple of AAAs and th- philanthropies and so forth. In Albany, they got four health plans, I think, and two hospitals. In Waco, two hospitals, two health plans, and the law enforcement. Importantly, law, law right. enforcement has figured out. Yeah. Let me tell you, police chiefs understand that 80, 90 percent of 911 calls have a mental health or substance use sure. source. Call. So again, we're back to healthcare spills over into all these other mm-hmm. So let's try to fix this problem. So I would say what you do is you, f- you figure out, okay, what are you willing to pay for? What is the problem you see in your community that's most important? And how might we design an intervention to address that? In Cleveland, they're doing medically tailored meals for socially isolated older adults. In Waco, they're doing basically family uh, care- case management for families who have an a- adolescent with a mental health 
issue that's ongoing and serious, okay? In Albany, they actually did an outreach program to reduce vaccine hesitancy and to get more people with shots in arms. So very different interventions. Yeah. But again, they saw how there was a common interest in doing it and an individual self-interest. So you would track the intervention for the individuals nominated, if you will, by the health plans or the hospitals okay. or the law enforcement just like they're the target group, then you set up a control group to make sure you compare the impact mm -hmm. appropriately and you track exactly what happened through time and just like any other project and evaluation. Okay. okay. It ain't rocket science or I couldn't <laughs> do it. <laughs> so you've had a feasibility study done and, and and what did you learn from that? So we learned that this is possible. I mean, the, the real question for the feasibility study is, this is a clever idea. Is it realistic? Will yeah. people actually do this? Would they actually put their money on the table because of some math we worked out? And the answer is yes. <laughs> okay. But it is a non-trivial undertaking. Right. That is to say, you've got to have some preconditions on the ground. You've got to have a group. I'll just call it a working group. It could be a coalition. It's turns out those groups exist in a lot of places, but somebody who's sort of meeting on a regular basis, trying to figure out what should we be doing as a community? What are our common problems? And then you need someone in the community who can play the role we call it of the trusted broker. A trusted broker is someone to whom each of those individual stakeholders who might benefit from a service being delivered in a timely way each of those stakeholders would not be willing to announce in public, I'm willing to put up $5 million because right. then the rest right. of them say zero, right? But, but if they might whisper it to a trusted broker who could add up all the secret confidential bids across the table, if the sum of the bids exceed the cost, then, young man, you've got a project worth doing. Okay. And by the way, if the sum of the bids exceed the cost, you can give them all a discount. Yeah. That discount is a baked-in ROI. Hmm. So you do it by focusing their self-interest and giving them the institutional conditions to make it possible. What's kind of interesting, those preconditions, stakeholder coalition and a trusted broker, are in way more communities than I ever dreamed. Yeah. And they're there for three reasons. Number one, readmission penalties. Readmission penalties put hospitals, for the first time, frankly, in 100 years, thinking outside their walls mm -hmm. because people get readmitted and they got penalized seriously for mm -hmm. readmission. People get readmitted not because what the hospital did wrong, for what it's for what doesn't happen after they leave yeah. the hospital. So they need to suddenly send people upstream. Right? Who do you think they sent? Not doctors, not nurses, social workers. Okay, number two, Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion put the homeless on the rolls of health plans for the first time in our country's history. Health plans don't know jack about the homeless, but they know who cost them money really fast. And again, what are these people? Where are they? Where? They don't have a home. What do we do with social workers? Number three, the opioid crisis. Yeah. The opioid crisis essentially produced situations all over the country where an emergency room doc, law enforcement, family services mm -hmm. in the same room, the patient survived in a lock zone. What do we do now? Well, if they got a wife, you know, they got a neighborhood, they got a community, they got some pr little problems. Well, turns out you got multiple sectors looking for common solutions of our upstream problem. Uh -huh. So suddenly I didn't have to create this. Those conditions existed. Yeah. When we started teaching this thing, we invited 30 people to the first webinar. We had over 200 every time. Huh. So it's because the, it's, the, mo the model's clever. It's not that clever. The truth is there's a hunger for this. Yeah, it resonates. Because people know they've got to solve these problems, and they know they can't solve them alone, and they've been trying forever. Our model gave them a framework and a language and a possible solution. Yeah. 
So you, you mentioned some of the cities earlier that are, mm-hmm. have some interventions underway. There are about 10 community coalitions that have expressed interest and, and are being assessed for Well, capacity. there are 10 that we is selected that... to be best in class. Okay. We, we okay. thought, so we thought the... they were most likely to succeed. Okay. Yeah. Good clarity. So how, how, are, how was that progressed? Because you do site visits? Is that... We did site visits. We, did, we started, we did four webinars in 2019, the second half of 2019. We finished them in October. And then we did a little survey. We asked each of the community coalitions, describe yourselves. Essentially, we were looking for how mature are they? How often have they been meeting? Have mm-hmm. they actually put their own money in any project? Do they, do they really trust each other? That kind of thing. You can tell, actually. Oh, yeah. Not that hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we did, and we picked the top 10, and we visited six of them, and then COVID shut down travel. Yeah. So we did the last four site visits via Zoom. Thank God for Zoom. Okay. But then, let's be clear, by late spring 2020, Everybody had to divert because sure. this was a new idea. This was not in last year's budget. They got to deal with triage on their own communities, and God bless them all. I mean, they all did what they had to do. And yeah. then, they, then they came out of what I call their COVID caves at different speeds. Cleveland came out first, and they were the first to implement. Then Albany, then Waco. And now we have about six or seven more that are still coming out of their COVID yeah. cave and thinking about doing it in the next year. So that's, that's where we are. Very promising. I, I I've seen some coalitions that might might have a leg up here in, in Little Rock and see what can happen here maybe. Oh, I think Arkansas has a number of the, of the preconditions. Yeah. In fact, as you know, the reason I'm here is to speak to Baptist leadership tomorrow right. about some of this stuff. So. Yeah, great, great. So uh, I love the, the public good model, but um, other than the public good model, what's, what's the most rewarding thing you've worked on in your career? Wow. <clears throat> Well, other than high school football, I would say, um, you know, I think the privilege of working in the Clinton administration at OMB to try to bring about health reform. Uh, you might have read this. We failed uh, pretty, pretty spectacularly. But it's also true. We learned a ton. And yeah. what's fascinating to me is how a lot of those lessons translated into pathways to success for Obama trying essentially the same thing. Yeah. 30 years later, right? I mean, 10, 20 years later. And, and I would just point out, my boss at OMB, Nancy Ann Mendeparl, became the White House point person for health reform under Obama. And I can promise you, she learned exactly what had to be learned about what went wrong. And a lot of it went better. It's good that lessons around. were learned. Yeah. yeah. And, and I had enough scar tissue and I'd been around enough, you know, by the time the second wave came around, I'm like the old man who can come tell stories about <laughs> why we failed and what you could do differently <laughs> this do time. This. But I spent a lot of time on the Hill talking to various members of Congress. I remember I spent an hour and a half with Senator Landrew the day before the vote. Oh, wow. We went through the whole bill section by section. We gave it collectively a C plus. And then she said, what if we blew this up? Could we do better? I said, no, ma'am. I said, you got to pass this thing because if, if this fails, it will be the second highly articulate president who has failed to bring about the thing we know this nation needs and the Democrats have promised to deliver forever. If you if you fail, it'll, it'll never happen in your lifetime. And 400,000 Louisianans won't have coverage. Yeah. Yeah. She voted for it. She had her own reasons, but anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, so final question. Um, the Twinkletown talk. Uh, how has growing up in a community like Star City influenced your work? Wow. Well, first of all, growing up in Star City is like growing up in a cocoon because you had so many people who cared about you. Yeah. I mean, literally, people could look at you, look at me, 
see my eyes when I'm seven years old. They know who my grandparents are. Uh-huh. I mean, they just they can see. Oh, that must be Rose's boy, right? Yeah. So, and 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 so there's this cocoon, and and they they want you to succeed. And so I I grew up in that incredible envelopment. But I also think growing up there, and then given the family and lucky experiences I had. You know, I was raised from a very early age, you should do more than just take care of yourself. You should think about how to make it better than you got here. Yeah. Right? My grandfather had a thing, you know, you go in the woods, you bring it out, you bring it in, you take it out, you leave it better than you found it. Absolutely. And that's the way I tried to live my life. So I got that from Star City. That's great. That's great. The old bulldog spirit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Nichols. It's been great to have you on the show. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, The views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode, and again, thanks for listening.